good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kaler, and uh, thank you so much to Dischem for this Dischem Medical Monday. Every time, every week, this time, I get to speak to some of the smartest, smartest medical professionals. And uh gives me great pleasure to welcome back somebody who's no stranger to High FM and certainly no stranger to Discam Medical Monday, Richard Sutton. One of these days I'm going to call you Professor Richard Sutton. I can see it. <laughs> How are you? Uh, um, fantastic. So great to be here. And, uh, you know, just I'm, I'm so happy that I was able to coordinate with you a time. Um, that's, that's been the challenge of late. Well, your challenge, not mine. <laughs> how's it going with you? Yeah, fantastic. How's the, how's the tennis coaching? Well, tennis, I'm, I'm invested mainly in South Africa. We had a second kid, um, quite recently. And thank you, thank you. And so we've got two kids under two and, uh, uh, the demands were a little bit too great to be traveling around the world. So I decided to, in February, March this year, decided to consolidate and just re- remain South Africa bound for, for the time being. That's quite amazing. Cause I mean, wasn't your last, uh, coaching or, you know, you were last working with Anna, Anna Kornikova, wasn't no, it? No, uh, Maria Sharapova. Oh, was there my, we go, Maria Sharapova. My last project. Uh, I wasn't able to <laughs> complete the project because of yes. uh, a new arrival, but uh, it, uh, everything worked out uh, fantastically well for, for How us. How stressed are, at, are athletes? Uh, it's interesting you say that because athletes are not, you know, we, we see this glamorous life, this, this, you know, everything's going well and the tension and they, adored all the time and and they're earning the big bucks and that's not the life that they live if you consider the life of an an athlete it's a life where they're starting very young six years old seven years old eight years old and it's just relentless it's pounding and it's it's pain every day it's fragmented relationships it's constant fatigue it's injuries it's failures team politics isolation loneliness Disappointments, exhausting travel schedule. The life of an athlete is actually really, really difficult. And one also has to consider that their careers are very short. Their careers are exceptionally short. Um, when we're starting to find our stride in our career in our 30s, their careers come to an end. Yeah. And this is, this is assuming that they've actually got to that point because a lot of the time they don't even fulfill their dreams or aspirations where they have to realize that this is the end this is where i have to stop the road and and that in itself is is a very big challenge and at the same time you've got public demands and, and intolerance you know the the springboks on on saturday were the the perfect example all this preparation all this focus all this hype and the outcome wasn't wasn't didn't go their way it wasn't favorable it's not to say that it's the end of the road for them it's an amazing team and it's very united and, and great leadership but but this is the life of an athlete but you know, the most interesting thing about athletes is that they're exposed to tr- a tremendous amount of, uh, amount of stress um, on an ongoing basis from a young age. Well, I imagine every every tennis match you don't win, every rugby match you don't win, 
I mean, that must be nothing short of devastating. And it's in the public domain. It's it's not only you who's a, your only critic. Right. You've got 50,000, 100,000, 10 million, 20 million people that are, are your critics. So that makes it even harder. But there was a, a very interesting study. It was a meta-analysis um, involving 10 separate studies, actually, and involved 42,800 athletes looking at health. So here we've got this very stressed group of individuals and research and scientists want to say, how do they compare to the average person? How does it compare to the man on the street or even the fitness enthusiast? And at the end of the study, now consider there's a lot of people, 42,000 people. At the end of the study, what they found was the average athlete has a far lower incidence of cancer, a far lower incidence of cardiovascular disease. And on top of it, actually, in this study, they showed greater life expectancy. Well, look at their lifestyles. Now, this is the thing. So this study revealed what it did was compared different types of athletes. So your lower activity athletes to your higher activity athletes. I'll give you an example. Cricket and golf are the lower activity athletes, whereas your higher activity athletes are the, the Ironman and soccer and, and those type of sports. And they found no survival advantage in athletes when compared – well, in more vigorous athletes when compared to non-vigorous athletes. So it was previously assumed that it's all got to do with the exercise. It's all got to do with the amount of activity. And that is the life support. And that's what's helping them thrive and, and lower cardiovascular disease, lower cancer, lower, uh, longer lifespans. But it was, it was shown otherwise that it actually had nothing to do with the amount of activity. And this wasn't the only study. There was actually a study. This was the most remarkable one. It was in the, the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It was over a 50-year period. And it compared 2,600 and I think 2,000, sorry, 2,363 athletes to 1,600 non-athletes over this period of time and looked at life expectancy. And what they found consistently is that athletes live at least six years longer than non-athletes. And that's taking into consideration sports like rugby and boxing where life expectancy is a little bit shorter because of the blows and the impact. Now, the secret to athletes is not necessarily their regular exercise and the regular routines and, and good nutrition, which is it forms certainly part and parcel of the infrastructure of their health plan. But what athletes know and, and what we don't fully understand and appreciate is what the off switch to stress is. They're confronted with stresses from an early life, but they learn how to manage it. They learn how to shut it down. So under normal circumstances, what happens is when stress levels rise, we have hormones coursing through our blood, cortisol, adrenaline, gushing through. And what happens is eventually they reach the brain and there's something called the negative feedback loop. So when cortisol reaches the brain, one of the stress hormones, the brain says to the adrenal glands, it's enough, cool it, it's no problem, we've, we've got enough. We've got the message. We've got the message, shut it down. The problem is if you've been stressed for long periods of time, that area, that center, it's called the hippocampus, that is responsible for shutting down stress, gets damaged. It's always the hippocampus. Always the hippocampus. <laughs> gets damaged. And invariably what happens is that the signals that are, are needed to shut down the stress axes are actually corrupted or they don't exist at all. And here we're we, we starting to see a situation or scenario where you have this prolonged state of stress that you can't manage or control. But athletes know that there's an off switch. There's actually an override system that we can access, and they've been accessing from the beginning of time. From the beginning of the career, they've learned how to access this system. But one also has to understand that this system is even more important when one has genetic variants where you can't regulate your own stress 
responses. So people with certain variants in a gene called FKBP5, um, generally also when they get aroused, when they get stressed, they can't shut it down. And if it's the stress centers or the, sh- the negative feedback centers in the brain that normally shut down the stress system and the stress hormones get damaged and corrupted, it just amplifies. And certain people can get really ill of this. Is, is that purely genetic, that some that, people can and some people can't? It, there is a, a genetic component, very, very much so. Could you learn it? You can learn how to override it, and that's what we're talking about. So athletes know, irrespective of this genetic variant or not, athletes know how to override it. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is Discam Medical Monday. My wonderful, wonderful guest is Richard Sutton. We're talking about the stress off switch. Did you know that you have a stress off switch? And if it's not genetic, like many people have, you can learn it. So uh, pay attention. Pull it. Pull up a chair and uh, take a listen. If you've got any questions for Richard, then you can just get in touch. And this is how you do it. 34519, that's the SMS line. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send us a telegram on 061-895-1019. That's 061-895-1019. You can contact us from anywhere in the world at uh, on air at highfm.com. If you've missed any details, get to our website. All the details are there. All right, Richard, the off switch. So the off switch. So I've discussed how we have this negative feedback system, and when you stress for long periods of times, there's long periods of time, um, it can become damaged or corrupted, and some people have a genetic variant where they can't shut it, their stress system down very efficiently. The, the stress off switch is not a feedback system. It's actually a nerve system. It's known as the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is a direct interface between the brain, organs, and other systems of the bodies, of the body, and its best recognized attribute is calming the body following a flight or fight, fight or flight state. So anytime we get aroused, it's the role of the vagus nerve to create reorganization and a sense of calm and order in our system. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. This, you've just opened up a massive can of worms. The vagus nerve is the nerve that, co- that connects our brain to our gut. Right. Exactly. Uh, you, you see, I do pay attention when you, Okay. So, is that why some people are calmed by finding comfort food in times of stress? Some people eat during stressful times and some people don't. So it's not necessarily related to stimulating digestion. It's related to sugars and fats elevating serotonin and dopamine. Um, so it can change alter okay. your neurochemistry so that you have this temporary respite from the challenges that you're confronted with. Okay, so it doesn't directly affect it. Not di- It's not the digestive process per se. Okay. But this being said, the stronger vagal tone is, the, the stronger it is, the quicker you recover from stress. And that's an important thing to consider. The other thing about the vagus nerve, which is very important, is that it's the master regulator of inflammation. And it was previously thought that some diseases or some chronic diseases, non-infectious diseases, are related to inflammation. It's now understood in the last five years or ten years that all diseases have some sort of root in inflammation or association to inflammation. That's not taking into account the 80 autoimmune diseases or greater than 80 autoimmune diseases that are out there. Which includes depression. Depression is an inflammatory disorder. 
Um, it can affect your neurochemistry. It can affect neurogenesis. It can affect stress uh, control centers within the brain. Uh, other immune or inflammatory diseases, diabetes is a good example. Atherosclerosis is a good example. Uh, MS is a, one of the more extreme states. Uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So this is a, it's a very broad spectrum. But central to most chronic diseases or non-infectious diseases is inflammation. Now, the master regulator of not only stress and shutting down of stress is the vagus nerve, but it's the master regulator of inflammation. And it's so influential in controlling inflammation that it controls inflammation through three different systems. If one of the systems in the body is corrupt or not working, the vagus nerve has the ability to switch and use another system in order to regulate inflammation. So that's one of the most remarkable features that, that it offers. But what it says to us is that we have control. We have the power over stress. Now, if I take a step back for a second, the World Health Organization cites stress as a health epidemic of the 21st century. So it's a problem, according to the World Health Organization. But one has to ask the question, how can they make a statement like this? Because if you think about cancer rates, depending on what paper you've read in the last 10 years, an 18% rise. Neurological diseases or the neurological burden is crippling the world economy. It's one of the biggest costs to the world economy, a trillion dollars a year for depression. Uh, you're looking at cardiovascular disease as a single biggest driver in premature death in the world today. How can the World Health Organization cite stress as the health epidemic and not these other issues? And the reason for this is actually because 75 to 90% of doctors' visits are stress-related. 73% of mental health issues are stress-related. 77% of physical health issues are stress-related. And if you experience stress as a child, chronic adversity, which so many people in this country do, there was a study that showed that it can decrease your lifespan by between 7 and 15 years. Wow. But it's not to say we only have to experience that as a child. If we experience stress as an adult, it can also be very impactful in terms of accelerated aging. There was a very interesting study by a Nobel Prize winner for medicine. And the study involved 58 women between the ages of 20 and 50. And the study wanted to look at the implications or the impact of stress on our cell age. How does stress affect our cell age? So they measured chronological age and biological age, and they weighed them up against each other. They then took participants through a two-year process and involved them in surveys and questionnaires and just monitored this two-year period. Three groups emerged from the study. One group who didn't experience much stress other than the normal irritations that we experience driving to work, it's traffic and, and we late for a meeting or, you know, an email comes well, through. Short term stress. Exactly. The, the little irritants. I don't even call it stress. It's just irritations. So that was one group. The middle group <clears throat> was a group that experienced Acute stress, where it was episodic, short intervals, couple of weeks of intense stress, it passed, life went on, same thing again. And the last group reported that they were stressed the entire period, two years. They then looked at cell age and chronological age. And what they found was the most remarkable thing. Those individuals who reported no stress, <clears throat> their chronological age and the biological age were identical. If you were 25, you're 25, either, both sides. Okay. Those individuals who reported episodic stress, where it was short intervals of stress, weeks. 
spaced. Those individuals also had identical chronological and biological age. But then what happened is when they looked at the group that experienced chronic stress, like two years nonstop, their biological age was almost two decades more advanced. Two decades of additional aging in response to chronic stress. Stress ages us. And the problem is in the last five years, more than 50% of the world's population are reporting more stress than ever before in history. Now, how does that come about? Is it the toughest point in human history? World wars, depressions? I don't know so much. What has changed in society where you're looking at half the world's population saying we're not coping? So this is the one side of the story is that you've got these tremendous health, negative health associations. But the other side of the story is that stress is potential. Your greatest accomplishments, your greatest achievements are bored in stress. That is true. If you're going to move in any direction, emotionally, physically, on a relationship level, it comes through that pressure. That's true, actually, and because I can, stress can propel you. It propels and you. compel you to do something because immediately your need becomes to exit that state of stress. So you look for solutions. But what happens if you are in a situation where you mm. just can't? Paralyzed by the yeah. situation. This is the thing. This is why you have to learn how to control it. And that's really what the narrative of today is, is or if Should you be able to control stress, stress can become an advantage in your life. If you're unable to control it, stress can become a limiting factor in your life. And that really is what sets athletes apart from the general population, is they've learned how to not only control it, but harness it. And you're going to teach us how. I'm speaking to Richard Sutton. Now, let me tell you something. If you don't know who Richard Sutton is, I don't know where you've been, but let me just tell you that he's currently considered to be one of the foremost experts in his field. Richard has advised top athletes, Olympic teams, International Sporting Federation, um, some of the world's top athletes that you have heard about, right? Kevin Anderson, um, Maria, no, Anna, Maria Sharapova, lots and lots and lots. I think it all, the whole story started with Tommy Haas with you and athletes, right? Uh, uh, some, somewhere down there. Somewhere yes. down there. Um, yeah, he's been a postgraduate lecturer in the areas of pain management, health and athletics development for almost two decades, and he consults to leading companies on stress, resilience, employee engagement, and productivity. If you want to get in touch with Richard, if you've got any questions about stress management, about your own health, then get in touch with us, and this is how you do it. You can send us a telegram on 61 Eight nine five one zero one nine, or you can send us an SMS text at a cost of one rand fifty, and that number is three four five one nine. If you want to find out other ways to contact us, perhaps you're listening abroad, somewhere out of South Africa, then get to highfm.com, and you'll find all the details there. Um, at the at the end of the Discam Medical uh, Monday hour, I will give you Richard's uh, website details, but for now. Teach us how to harness our stress to control it. So in order to control it, one has to pull on the right levers. And you've got two options here. You've got the active approach where you go out and do it, or you've got the passive approach where you get someone to facilitate the process for you. Now, one of the easiest ways to actually harness the vagus nerve and capitalize on the advantage of stress, and I just want to just dive into the advantage again, is when we get stressed, we unify four major systems of the body instantaneously, cardiovascular system, nervous system, hormonal system. 
and immune system, they come together instantaneously at a heightened level to help us cope, help us adapt, help us overcome. We find solutions in crisis. If it's been too long, too prolonged, unfortunately, it will have a destructive effect. If we can tap into the vagus nerve and learn how to shut it down almost at will, it becomes an advantage in life. And one thing I can say with absolute certainty is no stressful periods, no, no matter how advantageous it will be in the long run, is pleasant. Stress can be absolutely painful. When it's personal stress, it's even more painful. Professional stress, it's challenging. But stress is, doesn't come, even if you learn how to control it, it doesn't mean that it's a pleasant experience. It's a very, very hard and growth-provoking experience in one's life. This being said, how do we shut it down? How do we shut it down from a biological standpoint? We can't shut the circumstances down. We're going to be confronted with the same circumstances until we've overcome that or they've changed. And but also we don't always want to override the natural systems within the body that the body's got. The systems are defensive systems. Yeah. They're there to help us engage with the, the challenges. But those defensive systems can also become our destroyer. And this is why we want to bring in this vagus nerve. So the interesting thing about the vagus nerve is the best, one of the best and most simple ways to engage the vagus nerve is breathing exercises. Why is it we always resort to changing our breath, slowing our breath, take a couple of deep breaths when we're stressed? The reason why is not through one particular point or one particular mechanism. It's multifactorial. Because when we take deep breaths and we slow our breathing rate down, it lowers our heart rate and lowers our blood pressure. The biggest risk of chronic stress is a heart attack and a stroke. All of a sudden, you've just mitigated that risk. But also, the vagus nerve has branches just below the diaphragm, these, these tremendous branches just underneath the ribcage. And when we expand our ribcage, we stretch these branches, and these branches interface with five regions of the brain that directly influence emotion and memory. And this is why... Deep breathing exercises can be so effective for people with anxiety disorders and in worried states. Wow. The third The thing, pharmaceutical companies must not like you, Richard. There's a Hashtag place for everything. No, <laughs> there's, there's a place for everything. So just to take a step back again, it's so important this, is that when we do deep breathing exercise, we slow our breathing rate down, we stimulate certain things called baroreceptors. It's in our arterial system, and that lowers our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure. We also then expand our ribcage, stimulates these branches of the vagus nerve, and those branches then interface with the brain and control anxiety and worry and improve memory. And often we forget things when we're stressed. The last thing that takes place when we slow our breathing rate down is we stimulate certain cells in our lungs. And these, lung, these cells are called mechanoreceptors. And when we stretch our lungs through a deep inhalation and a deep exhalation, these mechanoreceptors interface with the vagus nerve directly, creating a sense of calm, restoring balance. So there's been a massive bi biological shift in response to breathing. As I say, the circumstances still wouldn't have changed, but certainly from a biological standpoint, uh, one can be far more protected. The question is, what is the ideal breathing rate? What is the, the tempo, the timing? And the most interesting thing about this is that there's a lot of different ideas of philosophies out there. What is the best? Is it best to breathe in for four counts, hold for seven counts, exhale for eight counts, inhale for eight counts, uh, hold your breath for 22 counts, breathe out for three? 
what is what is the ideal? And there was a meta-analysis looking at all these different techniques, putting them all together, and it found one simple thing. In terms of vagus nerve activation and shutting down the stress axes, the simplest thing is to slow your breathing rate to about 5 to 6 breaths a minute. We normally take about 12 to 18 breaths a minute. So slow it down. It's about six seconds in, six seconds out. But these are deep breaths. This deep is not breath. shallow well, no, breathing. No, you certainly can't breathe shallowly for, right. for that. So it's deep inhalation, six counts in, six counts out for a period of four to 12 minutes. And that will substantially and sufficiently activate the vagus nerve. There's a, di- a different methodology that also incorporates something called a 478 where you really focus on holding your breath for a little bit longer and that activates different systems, chemoreceptors within the bloodstream and within the brain and has a different effect but also very beneficial. There's so many apps out there. You can download free apps that will help facilitate this breathing exercise. So the next time you're in a spot of crisis and you feel that your system is not regulated, commit 4 to 12 minutes to slowing your breathing rate down Deep inhalation for six counts, exhalation for six counts, or use the four, seven, eight method, which is inhale for four, hold your breath for seven, exhale for eight, again, four to 12 minutes. Incredible. So that's breathing. All right. So um, is there any basis for meditation in this? So, Look, I like the breathing the, because you can still be doing other stuff while you're doing that. So that's it's, it's an amazing question that you've just asked. And... I'm glad you've asked this, this this question because now we're starting to dive a lot deeper. Breathing is like your starting point. Meditation fits in incredibly well. And, and what is the central theme of meditation? What do you do when you meditate? You breathe. You slow yeah. your breathing down. You control it. So there's this tremendous overlap between breathing exercise and meditation. But meditation goes to another level. And I want to talk about meditation and stress specifically. So it was actually a study, and it was a collaborative study between Chinese researchers and U.S. researchers. I think the first time it's ever happened. And it was all surrounding a particular form of meditation called IBMT, okay, which is very similar to mindful-based stress reduction. And what they were looking at within the sample group was in a stress simulation, cortisol levels, anxiety, depression, anger, fatigue, before five days of meditating and what happens in the same simulation following five days of meditation using this therapy. And what they found was the most incredible thing within five days in response to the same stressful events, simulations that are very unpleasant. Normally your stress responses get worse in response to a repeated stress simulation because you know what's coming. That's a general trajectory. But every single member of this group, their cortisol levels, their stress hormone levels were lower, their anxiety was lower, their depression rates were lower, their anger was lower, and their fatigue was lower. And that's in just five days. Hmm. But something that really resonates was the relationship between anxiety and meditation. And it was a team of researchers from Harvard, and they were looking at meditation, mindful-based stress reduction meditation, Compared to normal stress management protocols. So when I say normal stress management protocols, exercise, good diet, environment, reducing your stress. There were 89 participants in the group over an eight-week period. So group one was all mindful-based stress reduction. That's all they did. Nothing else. There was no other narrative. Group two did a stress management training course and they applied these principles. All the principles that we typically understand as helping us with stress, helping us with anxiety. Before the, before the whole trial, 
both groups went through the TRIA social stress test. And then following the eight weeks, both groups went through the same testing protocol. Now, the most interesting thing about this is that the group that engaged in stress management techniques, the exercise, the, yeah. their stress levels, as measured by hormones and inflammatory markers, were higher on the second test than in the first test. Eight weeks later, after all this training in stress management, this their group, stress levels their were stress higher. levels were higher. It doesn't make sense. For, no, it does make sense because they knew what was coming. So this this particular stress test is a very unpleasant stress test. So they knew it was coming, but their systems hadn't they they were able to cope with the day to days maybe a little bit better, but certainly they weren't able to change the equation when it came to a conf, being confronted with a crisis and your hormonal and immune responses to it. This being said, the group that did the meditation exclusively they had major shifts in hormonal outputs, much lower stress hormone output, and the inflammatory markers, and inflammation is one of the biggest triggers in diseases that stem from stress, the inflammatory markers were substantially lower. But this is not where it stops at all. So now we, we're comparing meditation to normal stress management practice. You can't even compare. Yes. We, we're saying that in five days, you can turn your whole experience of stress around just by meditating frequently. But what scientists want to do, understand better is how does meditation actually affect the brain and there there was a meta-analysis of 21 neuroimaging studies looking at 300 meditation practitioners 300 people that meditated on a regular basis and looking at what happened to their brain when compared to normal individuals and they found in this group eight regions of the brain to be substantially larger and these regions were the regions that regulate our emotional state our awareness of our environment, augment our memory, and help us with communication. So this is if you've been (laughs) meditating for long periods of time. Amazing outcome. But here's the question is, you're listening to the show and say, okay, okay, I'm getting it. I I understand that meditation will be an advantage in my life. But I've never meditated before. What can I expect if I start meditating now? Of course, a team at Harvard answered that question. So there was an eight-week study, and it took 33 participants. And it divided the group into half. One group was a control where MRI before the study, MRI after the study, no activity during the study. The other group was a mindful-based stress reduction meditation program, fully immersed in it. And they wanted to have a look at what happened to the brains of those individuals who immerse themselves in meditation. Okay, so do we know how long they meditated for every day? Like what was their meditation program? 27 minutes a day. 27 minutes. In 20, for, for 27 minutes a day, in eight weeks, areas responsible for learning, memory, and emotional regulation enlarged dramatically. That's incredible. For just two months. Just two months. But now something that's even more relevant. I mean, you brought up the meditation. I mean, yeah, so yeah. meditation, or it's a, a vagal activator. You have to understand because of the breathing component. But what really promotes success in life is something called resilience. And resilience is really about adaptability and problem solving in difficult situations. The more resilient we are, the better we do. Sure. It's not how educated we are. It's not how wealthier we are or unwealthy, not wealthy adapt we are. Adapt or die. It's, it's simply how <laughs> adaptable. And yeah. at, the, at the core of resilience is something called neuroplasticity. So our, our brain's ability or our brain cell's ability to connect to other brain cells, neuroplasticity. 
is central to resilience. So knowing that... That's a great word. Connections. Neuroplasticity. <laughs> adaptability. It's it's a form of adaptability within Mental a mechanic, adaptability. mechanical context. Yeah. So knowing that these connections are critical to resilience, a research team decided to have a look at how meditation affects connectivity in the brain. This okay. neuroplasticity, growing these new branches. Took 25 young participants... Exposed them to five hours of meditation in 14 days. Two weeks, five hours of meditation. MRI before, MRI afterwards. Looking exclusively at connectivity. At the end of the study, what they found was there were 60, 60 new connections within the brain in the areas of cognitive processing, emotion, balance, posture, coordination, and sleep. Why has it taken so long for us to have conversations about meditation? Is it still like too woo-woo? Not at all. The big pioneer in, in terms of meditation research is Harvard. Meditation has found its way into the athletic world. It's found its way into the professional world. Meditation is no longer an alternative practice. It's a mainstream performance facilitating activity. Now, the question is, so now... You've heard the science. I mean, I can go in for, uh, can go on a lot longer, but let's let's stop on meditation at that point. But no, no. Before we move on from meditation, Richard, um, Natalie, thank you so much, Natalie. She says, Natalie, here, what exactly is meditation? Well, meditation. There's there's several different forms of meditation. That's a very difficult question to ask. It's basically a, a, almost a silencing of your mind, in a sense. So several different forms of meditation. Some forms of meditation are about quieting the system and focusing on a particular element, be it breathing, be it an environment, or be it an aspect, just this intense focus and not letting your mind drift. Other forms of meditation, that's focus-based meditation, other forms of meditation involve where when one gets distracted is just to just let the distraction go. So this this is amazing when it comes to a lot of things that we're confronted with in life where we working, we we moving forward, we we operating and, and these just distractions are coming in and we start getting a very fixated. This open minded meditation teaches us how to just let things go. And be mindful. It's the most mindful that you'll ever be. So that's another form. And then we've got this compassionate form of meditation where it's a loving kindness type of meditation where it's all about just positive intention, positive thoughts. You might be fixating on your breathing, but you're just running through positive elements about yourself, reinforcing the positive strengths and characteristics that you possess, or it might be positivity in others that are close to you, positivity in kids, positive elements uh, surrounding family. And, and it even builds to the point where you start developing positive emotions for people that you're in conflict with. And that's its final kind of, its final manifestation. Hmm. So there's lots of forms of meditation and they're all centered around different focus points. But at, at, at the same time, it's basically just, well, not at the same time, but fundamentally it's, it's removing yourself from your current reality and looking inward and channeling it in either a focused state, an open-minded state, or alternatively a compassionate state. Thank you, Richard. Natalie, I hope that answers your question. Otherwise, Difficult uh, question, but great question. Yeah, and I'm sure that all different, uh, you know, the mindfulness, the one that focuses on your breathing and just clearing your mind is probably the, med the most common in what the studies were based on. I mean, that is, a, that is anecdotal, and I'm just making an assumption. 
But but yeah, it's, when one meditates, that that's generally what we're talking about, right? It's very, there's, as I said, there's there's many many different <laughs> forms of meditation, and mindful-based stress reduction is one of the big ones, and that's that's where a lot of the research is centered. But if you want to like source, you know, go back a few stages, where does meditation emanate from? It's it's a very strong kabbalistic practice. That is true. It's a very very strong kabbalistic, and it's exceptionally exceptionally powerful. Exceptionally powerful. When you start removing yourself from your physical state and entering this 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 world of your mind and imagination, and it's totally transcendent. Incredible. Okay. But let's quickly just talk about practicalities. Yes. How long do you need to meditate in order to capitalize on the benefits? The research is very simple. The research is saying six counts in six counts out <laughs> no, for four breathe, to twelve that, minutes. <laughs> that's the breathing. The meditation is thirty about thirty minutes a day, about five days a week, in order to really see enlargement in in brain mass and volume, in order to see new functional connections, in order to manage anxiety, in order to manage stress responses. These are the things that are likely to occur in response to meditation, which activates the vagus nerve, which shuts down the stress axes over and above everything else that meditation does. Richard, these are real tools that you're giving us. Thank you. No, this is just the beginning and meditation not. But something also very simple and very easy to apply is Cold water immersion. What if, if whenever you're confronted with a challenging situation and you feel unsettled, you feel derailed, that you're challenged in whatever you, you're doing and you need to center yourself, what do you go and do? You go to the bathroom and you splash your face with water. Why? What do you know intuitively that you don't know consciously? What is it about going That's to the basin and question. putting water over your face? And what is it about individuals who are obsessed with swimming in cold water for long periods of time? Yeah, I think they're all mad. <laughs> so that, <laughs> but I do know, yeah. I mean, my paternal grandfather, rain or shine, hail, sleet, snow, winter, summer, he would go for a morning swim every single morning. And he knew something. And what he knew was that when we immerse our face... In cold water, we activate a nerve system called the trigeminal nerve, which is directly related to the vagus nerve, and we cause a massive biological shift. We're able to regulate our biological state. Within 30 seconds, the stress axis has been turned off, our heart rate has dropped, our blood pressure has dropped, and stress induces changes in motility, normal organ patterns and behaviors in movement. Spontaneous recovery within 30 seconds. In fact, the greatest measure of vagal mm. strength and integrity is a cold water immersion test. So there's lots of different methods. I mean, you so is it enough just to splash your face? No, no. So from a practical standpoint, splashing the face will, will wake you up and you'll, you'll feel refreshed because you're activating the system. But it's not enough. If we are to derive benefit from cold face immersion, the best way to do it is to splash water on your face for a period of about 30 seconds. So just repeatedly putting water on your face. The water has to be cold. The water has to be around 4 to 10 degrees centigrade for this to really make a difference. But there's an easier way. A way that you can activate this vagus in 30 seconds, shut down the stress axes, create biological balance, create biological stability, lower immune profiles or immune activity and inflammation, 
and that is to take a face pack that is used for facial puffiness that you can get anywhere, I'm, I'm sure, at Discam. Like those eye masks. Those eye masks yeah. that's kept in the fridge, put it on your face for three minutes, and you've activated the vagus nerve substantially and sufficiently in order to have these incredible effects. This is great because then we can do it at work. Exactly. Right. Instead of putting your head in a <laughs> bowl of water for 30 seconds. <laughs> Which has a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, okay. Okay, so, that's so for a, three it's minutes. A, it's in for, you, yeah, for three minutes. Three take minutes. it off and you can do it several times during the course of the day. And do you put it in the freezer part or do you put it in the cold part? You'll have freezer burn on your, around your eyes if you oh, put it in the freezer. Okay, okay right, it has okay. to be in the fridge. Um, it's a mistake. Can do this often, it's, yeah. it's, a, <laughs> it's a mistake I've made before. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. So okay. another another amazing tool. So here what I've covered is deep breathing exercises, activate the vagus nerve. Meditation, incorporates deep breathing exercises, activates the vagus nerve, but does so many additional things in terms of brain structure and function. We're looking at cold face immersion, activating this trigeminal nerve, which in turn activates the vagus nerve, which centers the body and shuts down the stress axes. But there is one activity that... Only para is only paralleled by meditation, and that is yoga. Really? So there was a review of 59 studies looking at the relation between yoga and, va- and the vagus nerve. And what they found was that definitively within these 59 studies, yoga activates the vagus nerve, and more importantly, it increases vagal tone. And the best example of this is actually a study on yoga and depression. You have to understand that depression has certain connections to neuroinflammation. So one of the signatures of depression is raised cortisol, but another signature of depression is also raised inflammatory markers. So there was a study involving 58 individuals over a three-month period of time. All 58 individuals were depressed, and they divided these people into three groups. Group one was going to take an antidepressant. Group two was going to do yoga and take an antidepressant. And group three was going to just do a yoga session. And they wanted to see, after three months, what happened. Now, the most interesting thing about these 58 people is every single one of these people had elevated cortisol, one of the stress hormones, to the extent of over 30%. So that seems to be the genetic or the hormonal signature of stress is this raised cortisol to 30% or greater. At the end of three months, the researchers analyzed these three groups. And what they found was in the group taking the antidepressant, I just want to take a step back for a second, all three groups showed signs of improvement. The depression levels had dropped. Good. All, all three groups. Okay, great. But successful in all, all groups. But when they were looking at the biological markers, what really happened, not the masking agents or what potentially was going on, what they found was the group that was taking the antidepressants had raised cortisol. The cortisol levels had actually increased over the period of time, showing that, yes, there's been this massive emotional shift, and there's been some very positive neurochemical... But physiologically, nothing... But physiologically, they had, they were the system off. was still stressed. Yeah. The system was still stressed. And more stressed, because the cortisol levels were higher. Apparently. Okay. Then we've got the group that did yoga and meditation. I mean, yoga and, and, antidepressants. and took antidepressants. And what they found in this group was that there was no change. Cortisol levels were still at 30%. Wow. 
or 30% above normal levels. So they were getting the benefit. They were feeling better. They were feeling better, but, but there was no change. Okay. So th- there was still anarchy within the system. And then they looked at the group who only did yoga, who also reported the same degree of improvements as the other two groups, and they looked at their cortisol levels. There was a 20% decline in cortisol levels. From a biological standpoint, it was the only group that changed. And this was over how long? Three-month period. Three months. So a lot of people aren't depressed, but they're under a lot of pressure and they're stressed a lot. How does yoga fare under those conditions? The best groups to, to study under these conditions are generally medical students. One, they game for these type of evaluations. Two, they're subjected to tremendous stress. They don't sleep. Long working hours, low control and authority, low support, everything that kind of drives the stress process, these individuals are subjected to. So there was a study, it was in the International Journal of Research in Medical Sciences, and it involved 40 medical students. They looked at the medical students who were in the group, all of them reported significantly high levels of stress and all reported high levels of cortisol. They then divided the group In half, 20 went into a yoga group, daily yoga. 20 went into a control group, no yoga. Three months later, they reopened the chapter, looking at cortisol levels and levels of stress. What they found at the end of the three months, the group doing the yoga reported significantly lows of stress. But most importantly, they had a 40% drop in cortisol. A a 40% drop in cortisol. Now, the question is, how much yoga do you need to do in order to derive the benefit? And what kind of yoga? And what kind of yoga? So, the kind of yoga is is less important. I mean, it's whatever form of yoga that you resonate with. I mean, there's a lot of different styles. Um, so, I, I don't think the kind of yoga is there's that. There's a yanga and there's that other yoga that you go into that very, very hot room. The Bikram. The Bikram. Bikram yoga, yeah. yeah. So the style of yoga wasn't so important. A lot of, I mean, a lot of the yoga poses have a tremendous degree of carryover with the different styles. I'm not an expert in, in yoga, but certainly I can too from a research standpoint. Yoga is highly advantageous in terms of managing stress. And what the research generally shows is that if you're performing a yoga session for 20 to 60 minutes, couple of times, two to six times a week, you've got this transformation within your biological state that is able to just uplift you and move you forward. The yoga instructors, I have to say, are right. Yoga is a solution that is beyond just an exercise practice. It transforms one's health through activation and strengthening of the vagus nerve. But this leaves me with probably the most influential activity in terms of vagus nerve activation. And the most interesting thing about this experience is it's not something that I was too accustomed to or too familiar with. I've done yoga in the past. I know the benefits. I feel the benefits. I do breathing exercises. I know the benefits. feel the benefits. Cold water immersion. I know the benefits, and I feel the benefits. But this type of activity is something that up until 2014 I've never engaged in, or minimal engagement, and that is swimming. And... What happened was I was at the, the French Open with Kevin Anderson and it was, the excitement was overwhelming. It's, you know, the French Open just got something about it and all the athletes are training and it's this frenzy just before the, the start of the tournament. And 
I really enjoy the type of training that they do for speed and agility and body control and, and court work. And I don't have the opportunity to do it during the day, but I decided that one morning before the day starts, I'm going to go to the court and I'm going to do one of these sessions for myself. I used to do a lot. Of, I play a lot of tennis, a lot, a lot of running, and it was something I was quite familiar with and I loved. It was about a 20-minute walk to the court and I, I finally get to Roland Garros and I'm, I'm there, checked in with my badge and I realized I haven't got the right shoes. And there's one big no-no in this in this world is that don't use the wrong shoes for the wrong activities. It's a liability. But I ignored my own common sense and my own judgment and I decided I'm going to do the session anyway I need to do it and I'm not walking back another 20 minutes and coming back. I'm not going to take another 40 minutes. I actually don't have the time. So I go, it was one of the indoor courts, it was drizzling a little bit, I get onto one of the indoor courts, running up and down, back and forward, cones, shuffling, backpedaling, you know, every little like well, move. I can see this is not going to end well. This is and, not going to end well. Would you agree, <laughs> Craig? And then what happens is with the wrong shoes, there's a little tweak and I, and I just feel my knee. And I think, oh my word, okay, this, it doesn't stop me doing the session, but at the end of the session, I'm limping out of there and I realize that I've damaged my patella tendon. The nature of this type of injury, it's very, very difficult and challenging to overcome. It's not something that that's responsive to treatment. Not but it can't rest it. Something that's responsible, it can't rest it. Can't, it's not responsible for surgery either in many instances. So right then it was just a patella tendonitis, but two, three, four weeks later it wasn't being managed effectively by my colleagues and my, myself, and it turned into a patella tendinopathy, so structural changes of the tendon. And I had to stop playing tennis and I had to stop running. But after a couple of weeks, I, I just couldn't be doing core training and, and gym training. I decided that I'm going to have to get in a pool. And uh, eventually I get back to South Africa and I decide that I'm, I'm going to take my first swim. And I haven't swum since a kid. Get in the pool. It's a 20-meter pool, very short pool. Do one length. Seems okay. Another length. Seems okay. Another length. I'm almost dead. Done. Three lengths. 60 Can't meters. This, so is I'm, you talking. this is I'm finished. <laughs> So I kind of shake and stagger. I just managed to get myself out the pool. You know, it's such a different type of activity. And uh, I think, look, I've got no other aerobic choice, and I, I, I need to do aerobic exercise for mental clarity and, and health, and I just have to persist. Again, another session, 40 meters, 60 meters, 80 meters, 100 meters. I decide I have to go for coaching. So I make a, a, an appointment with the local coach and uh, have my first lesson. Gets me in the pool, starts teaching me technique. I have never experienced anything so unpleasant. <laughs> I thought I was drowning multiple times. I thought I was having, I don't have asthma. I thought I was having an asthma attack. There was every, every joint in my neck, every joint in my, every muscle in my neck, every joint in my body, every tendon had felt like it'd been ruptured and pulled. It was the most unpleasant experience. Half an hour later, I get out of there. I'm absolutely wiped out. I'm thinking there's no ways I'm coming back. Two days later, I go back. And I just persist, and I persist, and persist. And one of the limitations is that I, I battled with breathing and rhythm in terms of breathing. And the swimming coach started working on that with a lot of underwater activity, submergence, and it literally feels like you're going to drown. Um, it was, it was. I started actually fearing, getting stressed about the swimming sessions. But the most incredible thing that happens is I got better at swimming. I mean, I comfortably do two, three k's now. It's, it's. The most enjoyable activity. I still swim to this day and my knees are 100%. But the most amazing thing is that I noticed that following the swim sessions where I was submerged quite a lot, I was so much calmer, so much clearer, so much more focused. There was a, a, an incredible shift in my biology. 
And I thought, it's, you know, just an experience. It can't, you know, it can't be real. And then when I started researching the chapter on my book for vagus nerve activators, I realized within a couple of days or a couple of months is that one of the strongest activator of the vagus nerve is a reflex that's in our body called the diving reflex. The minute we go underwater and we hold our breath, we activate this powerful reflex called the diving reflex and our entire system recalibrates. The body's only interested in one thing and that is survival. No matter what state you go in, you will reorganize your system in order to survive. In fact, it's so powerful within seconds, you've got a 25% drop in blood pressure and heart rate. Immune markers will start coming down. The mechanism by which it operates is simply by the, through the baroreflex, these specialized receptors within our blood vessels and just around the heart, and then chemoreceptors within the brain. Exceptionally, exceptionally powerful. But the minute you start going underwater and holding for longer periods of time, holding your breath for longer periods of time, you start seeing major shifts in our biology. And that's what I began to experience with these swimming lessons. If you can hold your breath for up to about 30 seconds, you're going to see a 50% decline in heart rate, blood pressure, inflammatory markers. Within 30 seconds, your whole body recalibrates and will shift. The longer you're under, obviously you've got to come up at some point, the better it is for you. But there was a, a very interesting study that compared sedentary people to walkers to runners to swimmers it involved 41,000 people over 13 years looking at who had the greatest health and survival advantage is running the best for you is swimming the best for you is walking the best for you is doing nothing the best for you and we know we're doing nothing goes okay so I'm going to take that off the table at the end of the 13 year period they found that compared to walkers swimmers had a 51% lower risk of developing a chronic disease or dying within that 13 year period when they compared runners to swimmers, it was a very difficult assessment because both of them had the same levels of, of, of metrics in terms of cardio, uh, cardiovascular markers, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, cardiac output, VO2 maxes. A lot of the measures were measure for measure. Okay. But when they compared swimmers to runners, they found that swimmers within a 13-year period, 41,000 men Swimmers had a 49% lower risk of dying prematurely or developing a chronic That's disease incredible. in that particular. And the only difference between swimmers and runners is the sw swimming will activate the vagus nerve and running doesn't activate no, the vagus nerve. No, that swimming doesn't damage your knees. Swimming, when you running start getting to, to 21 Ks, you start worrying about knees and joints. Absolutely. When you're running. You, you, so you get to 21 Ks in a pool, you start worrying about floating. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I so, say, there, there's, but there's tremendous merit for running. I don't want to detract from, oh, from the took value his of running. Pools this morning. But, but so fundamentally, you know, swimming, swimming has this, this incredible advantage of activating the star reflex. There's been studies on what's the best length of time to swim in order to activate the vagus nerve. And studies have varied from 15 minutes to 60 minutes and beyond. But the cold water itself should be doing that in the first three if, minutes. If the cold water, but it's 10 degrees, no one gets into 10 degrees. That's a different reflex altogether. Ah. So very few people in the middle of winter in Johannesburg, you're going to get into 10 degrees. But um, at this time, if I jumped in the pool now, it would be about 18, 90 degrees in most deeper pools in, in Johannesburg. But this, this being said, this, uh, the researchers looked at the vagus nerve and they basically found that if you're swimming between 15 and 30 minutes or 15 to 45 minutes, it's the sweet spot. 
That's where the vagus nerve is going to be activated. That's where you're going to be able to shut down the stress reflex. That's where you're going to be able to lower inflammation. That's where you're going to be able to reorganize the system. That is where you're going to be able to promote your health. And that is despite the fact we're exposed to pool chemicals. Despite the fact. That is even for, imagine if it was a clear salt water pool or it was this pristine water body where you didn't have the chemicals. If that's with a chemical, who knows what the effects would be without those chemicals. Richard Sutton, we are out of time. I could have just, I, I can listen to you for another three hours and thank you for not making me talk too much <laughs> with my voice. Um, but I really do thank you so much and uh, really look forward to speaking to you again. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Um, if you want to get hold of Richard, then uh, get to his website, suttonhealth.co.za. Uh, also, you referred to a book. It's called The Stress Code. Yes. So that's Surviving to Thriving by exactly. Richard Sutton. Yeah, it's so available on Amazon. It's available in exclusives, Reader's Warehouse. Wherever. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Go check it out. Thank you so much, Thanks Richard so much Sutton. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, thank you, Disco Medical Monday. Thank you, Craig, for engineering. You learn a lot, eh, Craig? You could be a doctor. and of course thank you for joining me I'll see you same time same place next week God bless and stay well bye bye